If you would, turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 10. As you know, we're following the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to say the last week we were able to hear um, from Brother David outside of this study and out of Psalm 19, and um, I hope you were challenged and encouraged in that way. But now we're jumping back into Luke chapter 10 through our journey, uh, through this harmony where we're jumping back and forth, trying to fit together and piece together the chronological life of Christ. We want to see uh, from birth to death to burial to resurrection to ascension, um, we want to see the life of Christ as ministry. We want to worship him. And so we find ourselves in Luke chapter 10. We were in John for quite a while, and now we've jumped over to Luke. Um, as I told you two weeks ago, this passage and this chapter and these passages and chapters in Luke that we'll focus on uh, in, into the future, uh, they fit in between the the. almost the conclusion of the life and ministry of Christ. He's uh, on his way to Jerusalem. He is, um, as as some of the other gospel writers have said, literally have set his face to Jerusalem, meaning he is on his way, uh, in a sense, to die, uh, to go and give his life as a sacrifice. And particularly, um, in John, we looked at how this section of Scripture fits between Jesus being a part of the Feast of Tabernacles in Jerusalem, and then three months later, returning back to uh, celebrate the Feast of Dedication. Um, and so it's a kind of a three-month window that we will see more of this uh, ministry and this life of Christ. This is a very familiar passage today. Uh, The last time I was here with you, we looked at Jesus sending out the 72, um, which is also a a pretty familiar passage. But I would say that this passage uh, of our study today is probably one of the most well-known passages in all of Scripture. Matter of fact, it's so well-known that it's it's probably the most well-known passage to unbelievers in this world that have any concept of the Bible. And the reason why is because it's the parable of the Good Samaritan. And if there is anything that the world expects of the church, it's that the world expects the church to love the world. And so oftentimes, out of context, this passage will be used to say, well, what what about that passage of the Good Samaritan? How did he love his neighbor? How, why are you not loving your neighbor um, in, in this situation or, or this scenario? And, and nine times out of ten, when the world uses this passage, they are uh, failing to really understand its truth. And so today we're going to look at this passage. I've entitled this message today, Loving God Leads to Loving, Loving Others. It's a unique passage today because it doesn't necessarily initially go the direction that we think it's going to go. Many preachers and pastors have glanced over the, one of the main points of this passage this morning, which is that it's, it's evangelistic. It's an evangelistic passage. It's an interaction between Jesus and a religious leader, a lawyer, which Jesus is, in essence, inviting him to eternal life in him. And in that passage, we will see um, how this uh, man, this religious leader, like many of the religious leaders before him, could not get and understand the truth behind Jesus' teaching. So Jesus uses a parable a parable that this man does not seem to understand, and yet it is for our benefit as believers. So we're going to ask, we're going to answer three main questions today from this passage. We're going to answer, why should we love our neighbor? We're going to ask, who is our neighbor? And then we're going to ask, how we should love our neighbor. Okay? Why we should love our neighbor? Who is our neighbor and how should we love our neighbor? 
But in that, we're going to see a, uh, what I call a failure of the old man, which is an incorrect view of this passage and of loving our neighbor. And then I'm gonna, uh, we're also going to focus on, in those three questions, the fruit of the new man, which is how do we rightly interpret this passage and apply it to our life. So you'll, you'll pick up on this as we go, but the first main idea, the first question that really is asked of Jesus is, why should we love our neighbor? That's kind of the idea here in verses 25 through 28. Let me read this passage with, for us today, and then we'll dive in. It says, Behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? He said to them, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly, do this and you will live. But he desiring to justify himself said to Jesus, well, who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was uh, going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He, the lawyer, said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. So the first question that we have this morning is why should we love our neighbor? It's a very important question in this passage, and it's really the question that this man is asking, even though it is a different question than, than what is written. The, the man itself, the lawyer, this religious leader, this man that has been studied in the Old Testament scriptures, asked Jesus what many other religious leaders had asked. Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He doesn't actually ask how we should love our neighbor. But he is asking, how should I inherit eternal life? And so the answer before us today is, how do we receive eternal life? But the teacher is saying, what shall I do? What is my duty? How should I live? But notice the intention or the motive behind his question to Jesus. Once again, like most of the religious leaders, he's not really investigating how can he receive eternal life. He thinks he already has it. He is merely asking this question because he wants to trip up Jesus. He wants to discredit Jesus before the crowds and the public uh, uh, audience. So he is merely asking Jesus a question that he believes he already has the answer to. And of course... We know, studying from Scripture, that this man, like many of the other religious leaders, does not believe that faith comes from trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, that faith comes, one, in their uh, obedience to the law. Faith comes by their very right as Jews to salvation. So their righteousness is not based upon faith in Christ alone. Their righteousness is based upon their goodness, their obedience, and most importantly, their cultural heritage as Jews. In other words, they are the people of God. They are born in a a right to that salvation and that righteousness. 
So make no mistake, this man is not seeking the wisdom and the guidance from the Lord Jesus. This man is very different from Nicodemus, who actually came to Jesus and seemed to really inquire about what it took for him to have eternal life. See, this is what I call the failure of the old man. In essence, what he says to Jesus, Jesus says to him, or he asks Jesus, teacher, what should I do to inherit, inherit eternal life? And, and Jesus says, well, what is written in the law? You're the, you're the educated man. You're the, the great teacher. Tell me, what does the law say? Let's just not make up our own answers. Let's go to God's word and, and, and ask, what does it say? But then he asks a very important question. He says, how do you read it? Now, what Jesus is saying is not, um, what is the meaning that you find behind the text? He's, at, he's basically saying, what is your interpretation of the scripture? You know, many times we come to the text and we want to ask ourselves, what does this mean to me? Jesus is not saying, give me your interpretation of the Scripture. But he wants to focus on the right interpretation of the Scripture. He's trying to draw out the sinfulness and the unrighteousness of this man. So the man actually answers the, the, the question correctly. He says, how do you read it? Well, the man recites the Old Testament. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with your, all of your heart, and with all of your soul, and with all of your strength, and with all of your mind, and your neighbor as yourself, or love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, you have answered correctly, do this and you will live. See, the, the correct interpretation is not where this man stands. This man has, uh, is, is living in the life of sin. He has a failure in his status as what we call in the Christian church today, the old man, the life before Christ. And the reason why is he is reciting to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and your mind and to love your neighbor as yourself. And yet he is not even doing that because he does not have a relationship with God. He is failing to understand that he cannot attain salvation by his own power. He must trust in something greater than himself. So Jesus is trying to draw this man back to the scriptures so that the scriptures themselves will draw out his own sinfulness and his need for salvation. So what does he do? He draws him back to what does the, the law say? And this man points us back to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Now Deuteronomy chapter, chapter 6 is a, uh, a, a recollection. It's a revisiting of uh, the command of Moses and the Ten Commandments. And in Deuteronomy chapter 6, we are told these things. It says, now this is the commandment and the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you. This is Moses talking to the Jews. That you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it. That you may fear the Lord your God. That's important for us to understand this morning. That God commanded the Jews above all else to fear the Lord your God. In Proverbs, we know that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Let me continue in Deuteronomy chapter 6. You may fear the Lord your God, that your son and your son's sons, by keeping all of his commandments and his statutes, which I command you all the days of your life, that your days may be long. And then the very famous Shema, the, the, the things that the... the, the 
I guess like a prayer that they would say twice daily in the morning and at night. They would recite these to be reminded in verse 3 of Deuteronomy 6. Hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, uh, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you shall be on your heart. The Shema was recited twice daily. But it precipitated, it began on having a fear of the Lord. Now church, don't miss this. In the, from the very beginning, the fear of the Lord in the Old Testament is equivalent to faith in Jesus Christ. It was never a command to obey the commandments upon salvation. It precipitated on fearing the Lord. So what the Jews were commanded in the Old Testament is similar to uh, the, the command of the New Testament. It is fearing the Lord, faith in the Lord. It's the same truth. Not obey the commandments and then have faith in Christ. That was the misinterpretation of the scriptures. That was the misinterpretation of the religious leaders. To think that righteousness did not come by faith, but that righteousness came by being good and obeying all these commandments. And so the failure of this lawyer and the failure of people across the the history of the church is that they think that they in themselves can love God with all of their heart, with all of their soul, with all of their mind, with all of their strength, and that they can, in their own power, love their neighbor as themselves. The failure of man is that none of us can do that. The law of God was written in such a way that it not only gave us principles to live by, but it was the driving knife or sword that went into the conscience of man to show us that without the God's power and strength and grace, we cannot save ourselves. So the failure of this man in the question that Jesus is dealing with is that you do not love God, you do not fear Him or worship Him, so you cannot love Him with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, and you cannot love your neighbor. So why should we love our neighbor? Because first of all, it starts with our love of God. And that love of God is a fruit of the new man in Christ. You by no means can love your neighbor as yourself if you don't have the love of God flowing out of you. It is an overflow of a relationship with Christ, a fear of the Lord, an intimacy with Him. That's why it's the greatest commandment to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so the fruit of the new man, why is it that we should love our neighbor? It's because we are dedicated to a God who loves our neighbor. He is the one who shows his, his kindness and his affection to all people. His grace and his mercy. And this is the point that Jesus is trying to make. He does this in Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, if you want to turn there in your Bibles, verse 43, you'll be reminded that this is the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus is describing people who belong to his kingdom. People that are salt of the earth, people who are lights of the world, people who are poor in spirit, people who are meek, people who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. And here, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 43, Jesus is trying to correct an incorrect view of neighborly love. 
these religious leaders over the history of their religion and their faith had taken something that God had commanded them to love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love their neighbor as their self. And they had whittled love your neighbor as yourself down to basically interpreting that command as love other Jews as yourself. Even the Pharisees had been known in their traditional uh, writings to say that only Pharisees should love other Pharisees, that even the Jews themselves were not worthy of that love. So Jesus comes on the scene, and in Matthew chapter 5, he says this, "You You have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. See, that's the tradition of the day. The, the teaching of the rabbis and the, 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 the religious leaders was, listen, it's a righteous thing to hate the things that God hates. So you're to love your neighbor who are the fellow Jews, but you should hate the enemies of God. You should hate the people that despise God and that rebel against God. So only love other Jews and hate everybody else. That was the teaching of their day. So Jesus flips the script, he destroys their tradition, and he says, but I say to you, with his authority as the Lord of the universe, love your enemies. Not hate your enemies, love your enemies, and pray for those who persecute you. Pray for those who put you in jail. Pray for those who curse you and spit upon you and treat you unfairly and unjustly. Pray for them. Not pray that a a, a mountain or a boulder would fall upon their heads. Pray that they would have redemption. Pray that they would have God's mercy and grace. Pray that they would turn from their sin. But do so in such a way. Why? Because God gives them grace. God loves them. That's what Jesus says. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. You know, I want more than anything for my son to reflect the good qualities of my life. Not the bad, but the good. Not the unholy, but the holy. What Jesus is saying is that as you love even your enemies and you pray for your enemies, you are reflecting yourself as a child of God because that love of God is overflowing you and it's flowing out into the world in your love and your prayers for even your enemies. And then he gives the example in Matthew 5. For he, meaning God, your father, he makes his son, S-U-N, rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. So in other words, if the God of all creation shows his common grace and gives mercy to those who defy his name, the unjust, the evil then we who are people that love God and reflect his character, we also should love our enemies and pray for those who treat us unfairly and unjustly. But then Jesus puts something in at the very end of that verse. In verse 48, he says, You therefore must be perfect as your your heavenly Father is perfect. And right there, once again, is the standard by which we live by, which we cannot fulfill, which is perfection, which is our need for Christ. So when Jesus tells this lawyer in Luke chapter 10 to go do this and live, what he's saying is, go love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And if you do that perfectly, you will live, but you can't do that perfectly. So the failure of man is to understand that we are completely incapable of fulfilling this command outside of the power and the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. But in the new man, 
the one who has been transformed by Christ. Why we love our neighbor is because we are reflecting the God who has saved us and transformed our heart and given us a power within us that is in it is unexplainable and incomprehensible to an, a powerless world. That the church would be so visible in the world that people would see the love of God flowing out of us into the world that they would say to, the, to us, why is it that you love the needy? Why is it that you care for the homeless or the orphan or the widow or the refugee? Why is it you care for these people? And our answer can never be because we want to please God. Because we want him to be happy with us. Because we want to one day make our place in heaven. No, that's what the Muslims believe. For the third pillar of Islam, zakat, which is to provide charity to the poor and the needy as means of a proper righteous balance before Allah. That's not what we teach. That's not the gospel. The gospel is not love your neighbor so God will be pleased with you. The gospel is love your neighbor because God is pleased with you in Christ Jesus. So why should we love our neighbor? Because of who God is and because of what he's done for us. Number two, who is my neighbor? To cut to the heart of this of the matter of this, with this man, Jesus describes what a neighbor is. And he does it because the man ignorantly asks the question, and he's trying to justify himself. Remember, he believes that he loves his neighbor because he is kind and gracious to Jews. What he doesn't believe, or what he doesn't understand, is that he doesn't even fulfill that command because he's really not loving, loving other neighbors as himself. In other words, the presupposition is that we care for ourselves. The command is love other people as you love yourself. It's not teaching self-love. It's acknowledging that we have a responsibility to take care of ourselves. We feed ourselves. We clothe ourselves. We sacrifice a lot of things for ourselves. Are we doing that for other people? This man believed he was doing that for all Jews. Meaning every Jew that he came in contact with, this man mistakenly believed that he was obeying that commandment to the fullest. Folks, that is self-righteousness. For us to think that when the commandments, young people, when the commandment tells you to honor your mother and father, if you live your life every day thinking that every single moment of your life you are obeying your parents, then you are mistaken. Your very attitude of disagreement with what your mommy and your daddy tell you to do is sin against Almighty God and enough to send us to hell for our sin and face the punishment of God. One act of disobedience, of not putting up our toys. One disgruntled response to our employer at work is enough to condemn us to the wrath of God for our sin. So let's not be confused. This man was not even loving his neighbor. The purpose of Jesus' definition and his parable is to describe the failure of this man but also, for us as believers, it defines for us who our neighbor is and how we should love them. So the man says, who is my neighbor? And Jesus says, a man was going down to Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. The description of these three characters is intended to cut at the heart 
of this lawyer so that he can see that he does not fulfill the commandments of God perfectly. And so doing for us who have been transformed, it defines for us who God calls us to love. If you would, hold your place in Luke. Go to the Old Testament Leviticus, probably the place you're studying through in your, in your quiet time every morning. Leviticus 19. Look in verse 18. Actually, I'll start in verse 17. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. Notice there in verse 17, the word brother and neighbor are synonymous. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. Verse 18. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Again, in verse 18, sons of your own people and neighbor are synonymous. What does that mean? That means in the Old Testament, these verses represent Jews commanded to love other Jews. The word neighbor throughout the Old Testament does not refer to the world. It refers to other Jews. And so you can understand, if we just take those two verses, you can understand how this tradition of the Pharisees and the religious leaders took off. Because in those two verses, neighbor is synonymous with other Jews. But the the word of God does not stop there. So if it's not on the same page, go to Leviticus 9, uh, 19, verse 9 and 10. Because you could take this whole section as a whole and see that, that the Jews were commanded to love people outside the community of faith. Verse 9 of chapter 19. When, the, when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge. You shall gather, neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. Now go to verse 33. When, you're, when a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall not do him wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself. For you are strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Deuteronomy chapter 10. Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Bible Drill 101. Verse 17. For the Lord your God is the God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Verse 19, love the sojourner. Therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall fear the Lord your God. So folks, the the point that I want you to see this morning is that where the love your neighbor as yourself truth precipitated upon loving Jews, the Jews as a whole were to love all people. 
And tradition had been so uh, influential of the scriptures that it began to change that meaning. So that where the Jews read, love your neighbor as yourself and thought of other Jews, they really were commanded as Jews to love all people. To love the sojourner, to love the stranger, to love the widow, to love the orphan and the fatherless. And this morning, I I look around at our churches today, and I think that we have begun to rationalize and define neighbor as the same thing. That we're just called to love people that are in the church, that believe the way that we believe. We're failing to understand the question to who is my neighbor is that it's all people. Just as the Jews were commanded to love all people, So we in the church are commanded to love all people. And Jesus makes that clear in Matthew chapter 5. Listen, if the spectrum is people in the church, your brothers and sisters, and the enemies of your life, if if that's the spectrum, then everyone in between is the world, right? If, If Jesus is telling us to love our enemies, that's the hardest people to love, and, and then we're to love one another, people in the church. Guess what? Everybody in between is all people. And so Jesus gives this parable as an example to say, hey, listen, this story goes in such a way where uh, this Jewish man traveling from Jerusalem, uh, probably just uh, finishing uh, worship at the temple, is, is traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho. It's, it was known as, it was a path that was very treacherous. It was known as the Bloody Pass. And they're uh, surrounded by rock faces and, and, and caverns and crevices. It was an easy place for criminals to hide, to jump out in the night or day and rob you. And this man is traveling from Jerusalem and is attacked. And he's stripped naked. Everything is stolen from him. And he's half beaten, bloody, laying on the street. And what happens in Jesus' parable? This isn't a true story. This is an example to teach what happens to Jewish religious men. One, a priest traveling from Jerusalem. Another, a Levite. The Levite was the one kind of like the temple worker. He kind of helped in the temple to, to do different tasks. The priest was the one that led the services. And what would happen? These men are coming down from Jerusalem and probably returning home to Jericho and they encounter a brother laying on the road half beaten and naked and they pass on the other side. So we can interpret this as saying this is not loving your neighbor. When the inconvenience of a circumstance or a situation keeps us from loving people that are in great need. They refuse to help him. Many people have speculated why. Maybe it's because he was naked. Maybe it was because he was bloody. Maybe because they thought he was dead. We're not told why they didn't help him. That's not the point. The point is that they didn't help him. They didn't show the love that they claimed they had of God. They, they literally, we can suppose that they had left Jerusalem and just finished their duties as priests. They had just led in the worship of Almighty God. And then they ignored the practice of that love by walking past their dead or half-dead brother on the road. And then, of course... Jesus uses the word, I think, for hyperbole. He says, let me go back to Luke. He says in verse 33, But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. The contrast there between these two religious leaders who have failed to show the love of God 
and love their neighbor, this Samaritan, this Samaritan who is the enemy of the Jews, this Samaritan is the one who actually shows a true love for God. And so in his um, clear example, we ask the question this morning, who is my neighbor? Well, Jesus is showing us our neighbors are people who are different from us, even our enemies. The Samaritan's going to show us and has already shown us in verse 32 or 33 that he's the one that stops and has compassion for his enemy. For the one that's different than them. The one that, that is literally could have easily sneered and snarled against him in days uh, previous in Jerusalem. But now, no, we have the Samaritan who is coming to his aid and serving him. And I would say, spiritually speaking, our spiritual condition before Christ is that we are enemies laying dead in the road, and Jesus comes, steps out of heaven, comes down to earth, and comes and gives us aid and rescue by giving us new life in Christ through his sacrifice. He is the one, Jesus, who cares for his enemies. Romans chapter 5, that while we were still his enemies, Christ died for the ungodly. And so we are called to love our neighbors and, and particularly love the ones that are different from us. Love the ones we don't understand that, that bother us, that get on our nerves, that we don't relate to, that are an inconvenience of our time. And ultimately those that spit and snarl and attack and put us in prison, even our enemies. Folks, we, we just don't have an escape. <laughs> we don't have an escape of any hate or anger or lack of love and sacrifice that we're willing to give people in this world. And the Holy Spirit all week long has been beating me up and revealing sin and wickedness in my heart of the people that I don't show love to because I think I have a good reason why I shouldn't. People who are different from us, even our enemies, are our neighbors. People in need. The, the Jews were told in Leviticus 19... Don't take up all your crops. Leave some for the poor. Leave some for the sojourner. As they travel through your fields, they'll have food. The poor can go and gather the grapes on the vine. God is showing and commanding that we care for the poor. He doesn't ask us to necessarily have all the answers as to why they're poor. He doesn't say, uh, leave the fruit on the vine for those that you qualify as poor in your own mind. He's just saying, care for the poor. You don't have to know why they're poor. Just care for them because the love of God is overflowing in you. Because this love that's first directed toward God and overflows to people is what characterizes the believer in Christ. Remember Jesus' um, prophecy of the future when the Son of Man comes in his glory in Matthew chapter 25 and he divides the sheep from the goats, the sheep representing believers in Christ and the goats representing those that have turned away from Christ. And he tells those on his right who are the sheep, uh, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared to you from the foundation of the world. Why? Why are they classified as sheep? Because they have been chosen before the foundation of the world. They inherited the kingdom before the foundation of the world. But how did they manifest that? 
Verse 35, because I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. This is what people that belong to the kingdom do. And so in essence, who is our neighbor? All people are our neighbor. R.C. Sproul, the late, great R.C. Sproul, I guess we can say now, says this. He says, the Bible teaches a universal neighborhood of man. He says, I am required to love each human being as much as I love myself. Jesus was up against a deeply entrenched tradition that distorted the meaning of the great commandment. Jesus cut across that human tradition and restored the original meaning of the great commandment that God gave through Moses. The neighborhood in which we are called to serve goes beyond the boundaries. It does not end. It encompasses the globe. All people are my neighbors. So can I call us this this morning to a moment of repentance? Can I call us this morning to evaluate the own hate and the unloving actions of our heart where we have somehow rationalized our love and the dispensing of our love to people because we believe that they don't deserve it, that they don't qualify? Can I ask you this morning, That if you have a short list of people who you think deserve your time and your service, and that you you have a longer list of people who don't qualify, that that is a a work not of, of the Spirit of God in you, that that is a work of Satan and of your sinful flesh, that we would somehow be impartial to love certain people above others. It's in all of us. Can I ask you this morning to turn away from that thinking? That our love for others flows out of an impartial, unconditional love that God first displayed for us in Jesus Christ. Consider this morning that all people are your neighbor, just not an elite few. And that your list of love and service and care and ministry would elongate to include people of different color, culture, economic upbringing, different family structure, different profession. The neighbor that has insulted you, has stolen your tools, the, the schoolmate that made fun of you and bullied you the mom or dad that never loved you or cared for you, whatever that scenario is, it fits within love one another and love your enemies. And that's what God's called us to do. So how do we do that? How do I love my neighbor? Jesus tells us that this man in his parable went and bound up this this beaten Jew's wounds pouring oil and wine on them for medicinal purposes to treat this man's wounds. This Samaritan sets this beaten man on his animal, most likely a donkey, and he takes him and travels with him to an inn to take care of him. Verse 35 says, and the next day, which means that this man stayed with this beaten Jew all night long, caring for him, so that on the next day, he takes out two denarii, which was uh, at least two days of wages. And he says, I will leave this man with you, innkeeper, and use this money For now, and whatever money you use to continue the care for this man, I will come back and I will repay you. This is what it means to be a neighbor. Of course, this lawyer is, we can only suppose in his mind, is just overwhelmed with hatred 
of the thought that a Samaritan would show love to a Jew. And that the Samaritan was the very subject of Jesus' parable. And that's exactly what Jesus wanted to happen. Because in the failure of man, this lawyer should see that he wasn't the one represented in the parable helping the beaten man. That his people, that his uh, involvement with the religious elite were the ones passing by on the other side. And those very truths is what Jesus is trying to do to cut into the self-righteousness of this lawyer. But in the same way, for God's people, we, are, we have this beautiful definition of what it means to love our neighbor. How do we do it? What's the practice of it? And above all, it starts with loving God above all things. John Calvin says, For since every man is devoted to himself, there will never be true charity towards neighbors unless where the love of God reigns. For it is a mercenary love which the children of the world entertain for each other because every one of them has regard to his own advantage. But on the other hand, it is impossible for the love of God to reign without producing brotherly kindness among men. So how do I love my neighbor? Well, it first starts with a transformed life that only comes through Jesus Christ. If you try to love your neighbor to please God, you are no different than this lawyer who self-righteously thinks that he's already loved his neighbor and is in, in a good standing with God. But if you humbly come to understand that you are completely helpless without Christ and you are in need of his righteousness and his perfection, of his sacrificial death on the cross, of his resurrection, if you come to trust in Christ, then the Holy Spirit that's been given to you will give you, empower you, and equip you to love your neighbor in these ways. Number one, he will equip you and empower you to sacrifice social and prejudicial boundaries. You will so want to help and love other people that by surrendering to the Spirit and slaying the flesh, you will live in such a way where you will overlook the color of people's skin because the love of God wants you to love them regardless of where they've come from or where they were born or what their condition or circumstance might be. That didn't stop the Samaritan. That didn't stop Jesus from coming into this world and loving his enemies. Neighborly love is looking beyond people who are different and showing a grace and compassion that flows out of our love for Christ. See, when the, 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 the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ invades our lives and we are saved, our eyes are changed. Our human fleshly eyes see differences, but our spiritual eyes see uniqueness. Before Christ, we look at someone in the world that's a different color than us or a different culture than us, and we see differences. But when our spiritual eyes have been given, we see everybody as the image of God, created in the image of God, made in the same likeness as God, made to... uh, created to uh, enjoy and glorify God for all eternity, no matter what we look like, until our spiritual eyes are changed. And even if that person that you're called to love is not a believer in Christ, you know and understand their condition because that's where you once were. You were the beaten, despot person laying on the ground before you were rescued. You were the the homeless place, a, a, a person without a home and belonging until God invited you into his family and his kingdom 
where he stripped you of your soiled rags and he put on a robe of righteousness that was provided by his son. So you overcome those social and prejudicial boundaries because the spirit of God is flowing out of you, calling you to love your neighbor. I don't say much about this, but I'm going to tell you right now, this is a, there is no greater way to apply this than the refugee crisis in our, in our country. Outside of the political spectrum, let me tell you very clearly that, that there is no way that we can deny that every person that lives in this country legally or illegally is made in the image of God. And if they are made in the image of God and they are here, by all means, by what we teach in this church, God's sovereignty has allowed them to come here. Providentially, they are here and the church of Jesus Christ is called to love them and care for them regardless if we believe or support their illegal activity. We cannot acknowledge the sovereign power of God to lead us to know the gospel and deny his sovereign power to bring refugees into this country so that they can believe the gospel. Paul, as a prisoner in Rome, would have attested to the unfairness of his imprisonment and yet saw the providence behind it so that he could lead people to Christ. The Samaritan also sacrificed personal comforts. Loving our neighbor is demonstrated in this man's willingness to sacrifice what was very dear to him. He puts the man on his animal. He comforts and and cares for the man's wounds. He's willing to sacrifice his own financial, um, you know, his own purse or, or, or wallet that he has with him. He's willing to give of his own financial expenses so that he could care for this man who he does not know who would be called his enemy, and yet he's willing to help him and care for his need. He's willing to... Uh, man, this was a big one for me. He, he's willing to divert his own schedule so that he can care for this man. Can I tell you that one of the main reasons that I don't help people in need day in and day out in my life is because I'm too busy. And the Holy Spirit this week kept pounding me and pounding me and and reminding me that this man was willing to sacrifice his... He he didn't have a a plan in his schedule to stay in an inn with a half-beaten Jew and and caring and take care of him throughout the night. That wasn't his plan. Church, we got to be willing to surrender our plans and our schedules to care for the needs of people. Can you imagine for a moment the impact of our little church in this community, if we're willing to go out of our way, sacrifice our personal comforts, give away our own monies, be willing to engage people that look different than us in order that we may love them like Jesus and teach them the gospel of Jesus Christ. Can you imagine that? Listen, above all, above all, loving our neighbor caring for those people that even mistreat us, the main purpose is not to better their physical life so that they can live on this earth in a better state and then die in their sin. But we have so twisted the scriptures that we want to say that all they need is Jesus who cares about their physical needs. That's not the gospel. The gospel is is to love them in such a way that we share the, the gospel with them, to teach them the truth of their sinfulness, to teach them their need for Christ, but not to ignore their physical discomforts. We love them because the gospel has changed us, and we love them because 
it gives us an opportunity to share the gospel with them. No one wants to hear about Jesus from you if you ignore their physical needs. Instead, God uses the church for us to care for them. And as we love them, as our arms are draped over them, as we listen to their heart's desire and their their burdens and, and their difficulties and tragedies, we invite them to understand that the Redeemer of that tragedy and that suffering is not us giving them money or us providing some temporary comfort, that the, the Savior and Redeemer of that is Jesus. That He is the one that meets their greatest need, not the food in their belly, but the food for their soul. So in conclusion, sadly this man understands at the end of Jesus' parable the correct man who was showing mercy, who was the good neighbor. And Jesus said this, simply this, go and do likewise. Go and do likewise. He's not saying this because if this man goes and loves his neighbor, that he will be saved. No, he's actually telling him to go and love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And in commanding him to go and do likewise, the Holy Spirit will show him and convict him that there is no possible way in his unrighteousness to do that, and that he, must need, he, he needs and must turn to Christ. But as people who are living as new men and women in Jesus, the command for us is to go and do likewise. Because we have the power, we have been given the ability and the equipment that is necessary to truly love our neighbor. And now we know who that is.